we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. You guys always bring me the very best violence. No relationship. No emotion. Just sex. episode of gratuitous sex and violence the show where we explore the sensual music of schlock sex and violence intertwining with each other to create lovely lovely tones in our head my name is orlando and i'm joined by a special guest today our first lady guest ever miss Catherine. how are you Catherine? I'm good. How are you? Good. You excited to be here today? I'm so excited to be here, and I'm excited to see this movie. Yeah. Are you a movie fan? Are you a buff, a movie buff, a cinephile? I'm definitely a movie fan, but I don't know that I'm a buff. Uh-oh. I'm sorry. There yeah. are certain movies that there's I can degrees of, of, you know, there's, movie there's fandom. <laughs> I mean, I love movies, but mm-hmm. I haven't seen a lot of the ones that people reference, so they'll make references, and I'll say, oh, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, not everyone's a big fat geek <coughs> like myself, <coughs> you know. Um, I aspire to be a better movie geek, though. What kind of movies do you generally like to watch? Um, I mean, anything that's, you know, with strong female leads. Mm-hmm. I love a good comedy. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of what Unfortunately, else. we're not watching a comedy today. I know, today. right? That's okay. <laughs> I can handle things that are not comedic as well. I also like things that are dark. Yeah. Which I think this is going to be right. This is going to be fairly dark, right, and great. but that does have a, a you know strong female presence. I awesome. would say, e- awesome. in front of the camera and behind the camera. Even better. Okay, mm-hmm. I love that. So we are watching *The Piano*, which is a 1993 period drama film written and directed by Jane Campion, and starring Holly Hunter, Harvey Keitel, Sam Neill, and Anna Paquin in her first acting role ever. What? This movie is set in the mid-19th century, and it focuses on a psychologically mute Scottish woman who travels to remote New Zealand with her young daughter after an arranged marriage to a frontiersman. So you've never seen this movie before? I have not. I'm excited to see it, though. But you've never heard of it either? No. Not until you told me about this was it. A fairly, <laughs> this was a fairly well-known movie in 1993. I mean, yeah. it, it was a critically successful movie, and it actually was commercially successful. But the crazy thing about it is... I feel like not a lot of people know about it now. Yeah. And I don't know if that's because, I mean, I don't want to, like, be that guy that's like, sexism. I don't know if it's because... It could be. It was made by a woman. Because, like, other 90s films are well-known from that era. Like, you know, Pulp Fiction, Goodfellas. Mm -hmm. You know, they're all made by dudes. And people watch them all the time. But this movie is amazing, I think. Yeah? Yeah. I can't wait to see it. And assuming that I like it, which I think I will, I will then be the person who's always talking about it. And, you You know... You gotta watch this movie. Bring more awareness to it. Yeah. A few things to, like, to look out for in this movie. I mean... Yeah, yes, it's 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 made by women. So you know, and this movie, this uh, this show is called Gratuitous Sex and Violence. <laughs> so obviously, I wouldn't have picked this movie if it didn't have a gratuitous amount of at least one of those things. Okay. Okay. Fair. So I, what I want to know, and what what why I'm so excited that I have a a uh, female guest today on the show, is I want to know how this movie does in portraying sex and desire mm. from the point of view of a woman because i feel like that's one of the things that especially hollywood movies uh-huh. 
they don't do a very good job of, of, of portraying that, right? Agreed. Yeah? Like, when's the last time that you saw a movie that you were like, yes, that's, that's like, that's exactly how women behave in that situation? Oh, God, I can't think of one, to right? be honest. I, I can't think of one either. I know that we, like, we both are a fan of, like, Little little Women, Greta mm, Gerwig. So little good. Women. And that, you know, that, that wasn't a very sexy movie. Right. But it was a very, like, female-centric movie. Definitely. And it, and I feel like that did a good job of of uh, at least portraying like female desire, maybe mm-hmm. not female sexuality, but right. definitely Joe's character. Like she was very sure in what she wanted out of life until yes. she wasn't, but she was portraying right. herself to be, you know? Definitely. She was in touch. She was in touch with her desires. Mm-hmm. And then to your point, she arrived at a point in life where she kind of didn't know her next path or ask from her elbow what was going to happen in her journey Um, but going into that and then the through line in her life of like wanting to be a writer and a storyteller Mm -hmm, she mm -hmm. was always very in touch with her desires and yeah we talked about how wonderful that is to see right it's very rare in, in films. Mm-hmm. And this, I'd say, would is like, I, I mean, I, I think that this movie is a classic. I, I personally think that. Yeah. Uh, I think that more people should see this movie. So I'm really interested to get your take about, you know, how this movie handles that. Because there's okay. a fair amount of, of like, male ideal, ideology in the movie. But okay. again, it's like told from a female perspective. The movie is. Okay. Um, so I'm not going to give you away a lot of the movie. Because, yeah, I don't want to like, you know, <laughs> spoil it. Uh, but suffice it to say, like one of the things that I talked about in the synopsis, uh, Holly Hunter, she's playing a mute character. She's a mm. psychologically mute character. So one of the things also that's interesting about this movie is her performance, and I want to get like your take on that yeah. um, because I know that we're both actors, so right. it's, you know we admire performances. Um, and this is the kind of thing where you know how does she, the actress, but also the character, choose to communicate her her passion? Mm. You know. That's really interesting to look at in this yeah. movie. Um, so yeah, uh, if you're ready, I think we should just dive I'm in. I'm ready, Okay, yes. great. So if you guys at home want to play along, this movie is available to rent on demand. It's not available to stream anywhere, you know, for subscription or anything like that, which I think is a shame. I think more people should watch this movie and it should be available in more places. Um, but if you want to rent it, please do. It's a great movie. It's available on Amazon, Fandango, all the usual spots, iTunes. Awesome. Um, so we're going to watch the movie. We're going to take a break to do that. And then we'll come back right after the break. We'll play some trivia and we'll discuss the movie at length. So we'll see y'all on the other side. Woo! I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. You guys always bring me the very best violence. No relationship. No emotion. Just sex. We are back! Woo-woo! We just watched The Piana. First reactions, what do you think? It was really good. Yeah? Yeah, I want to, I was just, before we started recording, I was just saying that I want to watch it again and like take note of certain things that happened Mm -hmm. earlier. Um, But yeah, that was really good yeah really really good did you get a sense of like what i was what i was talking about before we watched it about um passion and desire from mm-hmm. a female perspective definitely mm-hmm. yes there's a lot of that which we'll talk more about but i thought that that was um that was that's something that's really good about the movie because it's i feel like because of the time period and the type of film that it is like a lot of 
what's happening is still uh, driven by male desire. Mm-hmm. But the way that the movie approaches telling that story right. and the way that it unpacks the consequences of it totally. is very much, I feel like, female-centric all the yes. way. Yes, I, I agree. And I really appreciated that. Because right. we definitely see other movies that are set in this time period where we don't get that perspective. Yeah. And it's right. just sort of male-desire-driven um, and women are kind of along for the ride, right? And and when like when women are in danger in those types of movies, because mm. a lot of I think a lot of these period films, like when it comes to sexuality, um, you see a lot of wh- a female endangerment in those mm-hmm. movies for some reason. Um, and I, I'm sure, like historically, that was true. There was right. a fair to amount exceed, of that. at least some extent, right? Um, so that was also really interesting about this movie for me um, was seeing the difference between the two men who were competing for her affection Mm. and how, because she was placed in sexual dangerous situations or sexually dangerous situations in both circumstances, Mm -hmm. but they played out completely different in the story. Yes. And so that's really fascinating to me. And um, I'm really interested to talk more about that in a, in a later section, because uh, that's why I'm excited to have like a like a girl perspective. Yeah. Because I, I I find that really fascinating, and I can talk about it, you know. But I'm not I don't know that perspective right. really. It's just something that I don't usually see in movies, you know. Yeah. So it's really fascinating to me, and I want to like, get into the nitty gritty um, of all of that. Uh, there's a lot to talk about the film too, like the performances, mm-hmm. the cinematography. Mm. It was um, beautifully shot. Right. Like, At New just... Zealand. Oh, I mean, like gorgeous. the Lord of the Rings movies are also shot there. And mm. that's one of the things about those movies is like it's like you're watching a National Geographic special. Yeah. <laughs> New Zealand is just, just a beautiful place. It's like unspoiled. Or at <laughs> right. least what we're seeing in the films, it's unspoiled. Yeah. It's like people haven't uh, gotten their hooks fully in yet. <laughs> right. Right. It definitely has like that frontier spirit. And mm-hmm. I actually find that really interesting, too, because it does kind of feel like like it, when you watch those American frontier movies, like mm-hmm. Last of the Mohicans, or you know, like so those set in like the French Revolutionary era, right? Uh, you get like that same feeling, except that here we're seeing it from in New Zealand with the with, instead of Native Americans, they're Maoris, mm-hmm. and it's still like it's very much the same dynamic of like the white colonialists right. and all that. So that's really fascinating to yeah. me too. Like it's not something that you come across every day. Like yeah, soaring from New Zealand, like the frontier of right. New Zealand. Yeah, no. Like I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I've seen that in a movie before this one. Right, and it's you know those are the kind of things, the details that are like hanging in the background because mm. the movie's not really about that. Yeah, but it adds so much to it. It definitely does, and it and it speaks more to the characters. Um, you know, like the 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 British people who mm-hmm. have lived there. And it, it speaks more to their character, mm. how they've uh, blended in, right. how they've insisted on staying exactly the same and sort of rejected being a part of the society in the way that the the people who have already lived there might prefer. So, mm-hmm. like, I found that to be really interesting as you, well. You kind of see that in our two male protagonists, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. George has sort of, like, found a way to exist with them in a, a mm-hmm. symbiotic sort of way. Right. He's learned their language. He's taken on some of their customs. Yeah, the tattoos. Um, And I 
literally don't remember the name of the other guy. Um, it's Alistair, but uh, it's Alistair. Sam Neill. Like that's all. Yeah, we yeah, right. <laughs> Sam and he, and how he is so uh, rigid, right? In, in his, stuck very in puritanical, his ways. actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so stuck in his ways. In a you know, in a lot of uh, respects, a lot but of respects. To me, it's almost like why would you go and live in this other place? And be so against taking them in and mm-hmm. being part of their culture in right. any way. Right. It's very much like George is of the land, mm-hmm. and and you know uh, this is not the right word to use, but it's but it goes back to that whole like civilized versus savagery kind of mm-hmm. thing. You know, like right. that you also find in these types of movies, like totally. you know, and, and but it, here it's like played with in a, in a totally different way. Yes. Yeah, yeah, because Alistair is so "quote unquote" civilized that mm-hmm. he can't, he can't become part of the world that he chose to be in. Right. Um, yeah, and he's always like having trouble, mm-hmm. you know, bargaining for land and uh-huh. doing all these things with, with the natives. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, just like connecting right. with, with people, both people that are different from him and people that are quote unquote the same. I mean, the whole movie is about communication. Yeah. Really. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. what it's about. It absolutely is. And that's really interesting to see like how, uh, you know, Ada is the mute one, but mm-hmm. the one who has the worst communication problem is Alistair. Oh my God. <laughs> right? Yes. Anyway, uh, we'll talk more <laughs> about that here in a little bit, but first... Let's play some The Piano Trivia! How are you feeling about this? Oh, I'm nervous. Like yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I tried to take note of details, <laughs> but I'm like, shoot, I have no idea what's going to be these questions. I might not have remembered and written down the right things. Uh, pro- I don't know. Probably not, because I always like pull like you know weird random stuff uh, as a trivia. All right, I, I, I'm ready. <laughs> a lot of these uh, questions, most of these questions, have to do with the actual piano, though. Okay. I tried Aww. to keep it to that because there's a, like a lot of details in this movie, mm-hmm. so I tried to at least like you know let's just make it about like the a- or in the environment of the piano. Okay. All right. Um. So. Uh, As always, this quiz consists of five questions and a bonus. The questions will go in order from least difficult to most difficult. So if I don't get the first one correct, (laughs) then I'm basically a goner. (laughs) Right. Then, you know, it's not going to look good. It's not going to look good. All right. I try my best to do it, though. Like sometimes we've had situations where like you don't get the first question and you get every other question. So it just depends. Like (laughs) These are the ones that I would find more difficult in this order, but maybe not true for you. We'll see. Um, and and so the five questions, uh, they are specifically about the movie. Mm-hmm. The bonus question is not specifically about the movie. It's traced from the world of the film, but it's related to the, maybe like the behind the scenes of the movie. All right. Okay. Okay. And as always, the grand prize is bragging rights. Woo-hoo. So let's see if you get some bragging rights All today. Right, let's see. Fingers crossed. Question number one. What piece of furniture... Does Ada mark with the carvings of a piano? Uh, a table. Correct. It's a Woo-hoo! table. Yes. All right. I got the first. <laughs> I got the first question, so I'm not starting dead in the water. <laughs> right. Right. I might get there, but that scene to me is super fascinating. The one right after. When oh. Alistair is talking oh, about, you know, He's such a doofus. isn't it strange that she would be playing on a table because there's no sound, mm. you know? And I feel like, I mean, the piano is very obviously a metaphor for Ada herself. Mm-hmm. 
um, which is why it's so important for her to begin right. with. It's basically like her soul and her her mm -hmm. form of communication. Right. Um, and it's really interesting that that he would be like okay with having a mute wife, but then not understand on the same level like her relationship with the piano and right. why not even not hearing the piano. That's not the point. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> not hearing the piano, that's almost like about uh, the audience, for lack of a better term. Right. In in this case, him. Right. So it's him basically saying, but I don't get why mm -hmm. she would play a table as a piano because I can't hear right. it. Yeah. And it's like a very egocentric way of misunderstanding. It's somebody. definitely a language barrier. Yeah. Like music is a language in this movie. Totally. Yeah. And, and yeah, playing the table, it's, yeah, it doesn't make sound, but it's about the action mm -hmm. of... Expression. Of playing the keys right. and speaking the language that she right. can speak. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So you got that one. That one was super easy. Here comes question number two. Oh, God. This one's going to be harder. How many keys does Baines exchange to just lie with Ada? Five. Correct. It's yes! five. Because then I was remembering the later thing that was 10, ten, I think. And I was like, wait, was this one five? Anyway. That one was to lie naked. Ooh, I know that. Like, I almost was like, <laughs> how many keys to lie with her with or without clothes? But I, you know, mm -hmm. just guess five. Okay, to great. just lie, it was, just lie, five, it was five keys. Okay, woo woo. The exchanging of the keys uh, is a really clever way to, to frame that whole journey that they had together, mm -hmm. which I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Totally. But again, it goes back to communication uh -huh. and I feel like that he and her both use the piano to communicate albeit in completely different <laughs> totally. ways. Totally, yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, I almost felt like I'm not I almost felt like I feel like mm -hmm. him just taking the piano off the beach in the first place mm -hmm. was his way of saying, "All right, I get it." This is important to you. Right. Nobody else seems to get it, and and nobody else seems to be willing to do anything, but I'm going to take this piano, mm -hmm. and I'm going to hold this for you, and yeah, I'm going to create a situation where you get to play it. Yeah, yeah it's like an overture. Yeah, yeah it, it was it, a That very, was his first, like, his you know... His first loving first gesture. Move, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and, but it's interesting, like, he doesn't quite get it from the beginning either. Like, it's not until... Um, Ada and and uh, Flora, her his her daughter, uh, get him to take them back right. to the beach, and he sees them uh, just getting to like be and mm -hmm. exist in their truest, most relaxed, most easeful sort mm -hmm. of way, and um, and yeah, I. I, I, I told you this already. I want to go back and see early, the earlier scenes right. with the two of them. But I would venture to say that seeing her with the piano, on the that's the moment he falls in love with her, mm. I would think. Mm. Although, who knows? It could have happened earlier and I missed it. <laughs> right. But if it did, then that moment on the beach is when it's cemented and he's just like... I think so, too. I think yeah. that that's the moment where he actually... He, he can see what's inside of her. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the key to why, even though, again, let's not get ahead of ourselves, but just a little <laughs> preview, the key to why his relationship, even though there is a massive amount of coercion from his totally. point of view, <laughs> but, the, but the key to why it works um, on his side mm -hmm. is because he's after what's inside of her, not what's on the outside of her. And he started by 
giving her something right that sh- that he knew she cared about mm-hmm. that you know her own husband was ig- ignoring yeah and just he like he doesn't just, care at all he, he doesn't just, get it he did not get it mm-hmm. and he didn't try to get her perspective which was right. obviously very different right. from hers uh his rather mm-hmm. whereas george is like okay it's not a big deal to me, but it's a big deal to her. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go with that, mm-hmm. which is, you know, probably a good first step. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty sweet for a frontiersman, yeah. I guess. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> he still needs to clean his nails, but... Right. <laughs> yeah, pretty dirty nails. Yeah, they're kind of gross looking. Um, so continuing on this theme of using the piano as communication, here comes question number three. What does Ada write on the piano key that's meant for Baines? George. Yeah, for George. Okay, okay. I couldn't remember his last name. Um, I ooh, I'm not gonna remember the exact words, but it Mm. it's something to the effect of "My heart is yours." Mm. That was at least part of it, right? That's paraphrasing it. I am. I'm paraphrasing. I was looking for the exact quote. I didn't. It was short enough. I thought maybe you would get it. You have my heart. There you go. You have my heart. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Okay. Dear Baines, you have my heart. Ada McGrath is the exact thing. But yeah, you have my heart. Okay. All right. Great. That's that's what she wrote. Okay. Whew, I got it. Yeah. I <laughs> I think that you know, there's like a lot of subtle power in this movie, and every mm-hmm. time I see it, I I there's like different things that affect me personally, and it all it all like builds very naturally. I think yeah. um, you. It takes you in places that you don't expect, which it leaves you with a really haunting feeling. Yes. You know, and that's one of them. Like when you know, you have my heart mm. because the piano is her heart. The piano right. is her soul. Yeah. And she sacrifices. She's she's initially reluctant to sacrifice the entire thing. Like that's what Sam Neill's character Alistair says. Like we're a family now. We got to make sacrifices, and the piano's one thing. <sighs> And she's okay. like reluctant to let go of it. Yeah. Um, she's really pissed off when he when when he um, swaps the piano for land. Mm. You know, she yeah. writes on the note, "It's mine, it's mine." Right. You know. Right. But then in that moment, she gives him a key. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it li- I mean, you can think of that metaphorically too, like the key to her heart kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. But also, you know. As far as pianos are concerned, if you don't have one key, yeah, it's, it's pretty awful to play that piano. <laughs> so it's also like not just is she like answering his earlier question of like, yeah, I love mm-hmm. you too, um, but it's also a profound act of trust. Right. If the piano is her most prized possession and, you know, the key to her heart and how she gets to express herself and really like let her soul sing Mm -hmm. giving him a key is like an act of trust of like not only do I need you to know how I feel about you but I also trust that you're going to give this key back and I'm going to be able to make my piano (laughs) whole again (laughs) right and he does actually he he somehow gets the key even though Alistair ends up with it but he's but he somehow gets it and he's like yeah I'm going to fix your piano for you like he's always thinking about her Mm -hmm. really yeah Uh, and what's important to her yeah yeah, even when he's being coercive, he's right. he's still kind of thinking about her the whole time. Totally, because I <laughs> I think that even while he was being coercive, which like you saw me reacting, I was like, no. <laughs> but the thing is, is, not that I'm excusing coercion, mm-hmm. but I do think that he was coercing her into something he thought that she wanted. Mm. Like coercing her or trying to create an opportunity for her to express herself. 
Like, I think he was like, I think there's something going on between the two of us. I don't mm. think it's just on my side. I think you feel it too. And like, maybe you just need me to open the door mm. or to create the environment where you can express that. Mm. I, I That might be a um, very optimistic view of coercion, <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, I definitely, I mean, again, this is maybe for a difference. We're just kind of jumping the gun here. But the whole movie is about this. So, you know, um, I do feel like obviously his coercion is inexcusable. I don't right. I don't think that that's the way that you um, win over a lady's heart. Definitely not. Right? Not even in that time. Right. But the the thing that makes it work again is because it the consequences of that is it's all her agency. I don't know. It's probably confusing the way I worded it. But you know what I mean? Like, I feel like she was in control of how it played out. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He was the one who was like, let's do this Mm because this is what I want. Mm -hmm. And she's like, okay, but instead of per key, it's per black keys. Mm -hmm. And then she's the one who's like in charge of the negotiating the whole time. Exactly. And had she said just flat out no, Mm -hmm. I I feel like he wouldn't have pushed. Right. You know, he'd have been like, all right. Right. But the fact that she was willing to negotiate. At least I would hope that he would have pushed. I know. I don't know. (laughs) I, I would hope so as well. I mean, seeing as he was in love with her, I would hope he wouldn't, you know, push if she was absolutely against something. And he does let her go. He does. You know. He does let her own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So uh, we talked a little bit about this, but let's see if you caught um, the specifics of this question. Here comes question number four. What does Bane swap for the piano? Land. I know, but how much? Ooh. How many acres of land? A hundred. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. 50. That is incorrect. 40. Uh, you, you don't get multiple guesses. Why not? Why not? <laughs> you already got it wrong. All right. It's 80. 80 acres. 80. All right. So I was kind you were, you of You were closer close. with 100. Uh, yeah, all right. Okay. It is between 50 and 100, but it's 80. <laughs> <laughs> 80 acres. 80 acres for a piano. No, I mean, not a bad swap. I still hate her husband. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Yeah. He's still wrong. But yeah, I mean, 80 acres for a piano, that is probably the steal of a century. <laughs> yeah, he, he shouldn't have he shouldn't have traded the piano. Yeah. I mean, he basically and even when when George gives the piano back, like his first reaction is not how does this affect Ada, but how it affects him. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like I, I can't give you real money for the land and he's like what if I don't want it? And George and George is like, well, I didn't give it to you. I gave it yeah. to Ada. What if I, I don't want it? Mm, here's a thought. Everything is not about you. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. All right, so you know you got you got three out of four. You missed that one, but you know we are getting a little bit harder. But here comes the hardest question of the oh quiz. God. Let's see if you got this. Uh, this is a detail that happens at the very very beginning of the movie. We actually hear it, and and Sam Neill does mention it once later on. Uh oh, I feel like I I'm not gonna anyway. At what age did Ada become mute? Six. There you go. You got it. Yes. <laughs> I wrote that old. down because oh, I was like, I feel like that will be important. Although I think I would have remembered it regardless. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a pretty important detail. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I don't know, the, the psychologist in me, I'm not a psychologist, mm-hmm. is like, what went on in this poor young woman's right? life at six? Yeah. Like, what happened? Because... Because she's a psychologically yeah, mute. Yeah, there's know, nothing she's not, physically right. preventing her. So there must have been like a, a profound trauma or right. or something. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. We never really get that. And yeah. we don't really get a lot of information either about 
um, Flora's biological dad. Like we yeah. hear a lot of like tall tales that Flora tells, <laughs> and we get that scene where that one, yeah, where, where she's telling yeah, Ada's like trying to tell her, but we don't really get the story. We yeah. just get like Flora's reaction to it. Totally, yeah. Mm-hmm. Be curious. There's a lot of like interest there. I think mm. you know, and like we never know like the the story that Ada tells her which is somewhat romanticized, but obviously with like an, an, an ending that makes it clear why they couldn't be together. Mm-hmm. Um, that could have been a romanticized version of what occurred. Like right. who, knows? who knows? It may not have ever been like a true relationship. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is some, I guess, speculation or at least heavily implied both from Flora and Ada's account that, it, that the guy did have something to do with music mm. and perhaps Ada learned piano from him. Yeah, maybe. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah. All right, so you got four out of five. So you got some pretty decent bragging rights, I would say. (gasps) Yes! You don't really need the bonus, but here comes the bonus anyway. Okay. Let's see, because if you can get five, then you got complete bragging rights here. Now, the bonus is about the film's director, Jane Campion. Mm -hmm. Jane Campion became the second of five women out of 72 total awards given in the history of the Academy Awards, she was the second of five women to date to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Director. Mm-hmm. So we got five women total, okay. including Jane Campion, uh-huh. who have been nominated for Best Director. Oh, God. The bonus question is a two-part bonus. Okay. Name two of the other four women who have been nominated, and you get a bonus bonus point if you can tell me who is the only one who has won the award to date. Okay, uh, so for the part one, uh, <laughs> Greta Gerwig and Catherine Bigelow. Correct, yes, those are two of them. Woo! And I believe it's Catherine Bigelow who won. That's correct! Yes! 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 The five women are Lena Wertmuller, who was nominated for The Seven Beauties in 1975. Jane Campion for The Piano in 93, Sofia Coppola for Lost in Translation 2003, mm-hmm. Catherine Bigelow for The Hurt Locker 2008. She ended up winning the award Woo-hoo! that year. And Greta Gerwig for Lady Bird in 2017. And she also should have been nominated for Little Women. I was just going to say, just as a side note, the fact that she was nominated for Lady Bird, which was a good film, which was a very good film. Really good but film. But not for Little Women, which was like a, a fucking incredible film. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, what? What? Right. Who is coming up with this shit? <laughs> yeah, Bigelow is the only woman to win the award. And again, this is out of 72 total awards Gosh. given. We got five and one. Uh, we need to do better, I yeah, think. Yes, seriously. Um... So you got the bonus. Congratulations. You did really great in that quiz. Your first time doing the quiz, you did it. Now, in 1993, the film also won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, making Jane Campion the first and only female director to date to ever receive that award. Nice. And even though she did not win Best Director, the movie did win three Academy (gasps) Awards. Nice. Out of eight total nominations. It won Best Actress for Holly Hunter. Yep. Best Supporting Actress for Anna Paquin, <gasps> yes. who was the youngest recipient at 11 to... to uh, well, she was 12 at the time when she right. won the award, but 11 when she was filming the movie. I mean, she was real good. She was great. Her yeah. pouts. Her, like, not tantrums. That would be too strong. But her pouts in this movie are just so... A young girl. Mm-hmm. They're just so real. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and it also won Best Original Screenplay for Jane Campion. So at mm. least she won an award for, for that. Because, I mean, the story is phenomenal. Yeah. It's really good. Um, interestingly enough, of the eight nominations, only one of those nominations was a man. Mm. And it was cinematographer Stuart Dryberg. Mm. He was the only man to receive an Oscar nomination for his work in the film. The other seven were given to women. Um, there was a script for screenwriter and directing for Jane mm-hmm. Campion, producer uh, Jan-, Jan Chapman, mm-hmm. costume director Janet Patterson, mm-hmm. editor editor Veronica Jennett, and actresses Holly Hunter and Anna Paquin. That's yes. a pretty rare feat. I, I know think. that that never happens. Right? I love it. <laughs> so this is a very very female centric, heavy yes. perspective movie from love behind it. the scenes and in front of the camera. Mm. And I thought I find that super fascinating because this is like. Again, it's like the type of story where I feel like we've seen stories like this, even mm-hmm. romantic stories, mm-hmm. but they're always told like with, I think, like a male gaze. Right. Yes. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and this, you know, this film clearly brought something really unique to the table. Mm-hmm. It won awards. Mm-hmm. It made a big splash. Like, I mean, is there a, a bigger incentive to hire more women <laughs> behind and in front of the camera? I think not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we need more. More need of those more, stories. Because yeah. I, I, you know, like, I, I hear this argument all the time, you know, it's like, you know, the only thing you, that happens when you have, like, diversity is you you win. You enrich right. it. Like, exactly. You more perspectives. Yeah, it's never it's never a negative thing. Exactly. You, you have more stories. Yes. What's wrong with having more stories? Totally. So we're going to go into the first of our GSV segments. The first one's called Shots, 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 Shots. We're talking about the gratuitous violence in this movie. Normally when we watch violent movies, I ask how many deaths have were in the movie. We don't really have a literal death in the film, although it is heavily implied that there is a spiritual or metaphorical death in the movie. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And because the piano is a coffin, right? Yeah. And oh. so we have Ada dying and resurrecting. Yes. I loved that moment. I I, I was afraid for a minute that she was just yeah. going to go down with it and be like, well, life's gone to shit. I'm losing. I'm missing a finger. Like, mm-hmm. here's where we're at. And then she's like, no, I want to live. And I was like, yes. Take that shoe off. And interestingly enough, in an earlier draft of the story, she does die. She I'm commits not suicide. To hear that. But I agree. I feel like the rebirth is more powerful. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad that Jane Campion made that adjustment. Yeah. I um, can totally understand the the suicide being mm-hmm. in an earlier draft, though. Right. I, I feel like it's very on the way to getting to the fullness of the story. That's mm-hmm. a step. Is, right. Uh, seeing would that be the end? Right. And it's and it's very like old school romantic totally. I feel like right like it has like a Wuthering Heights quality to yes. it yes. <laughs> just like your passion is so much you just want to die <laughs> you know can't live with all this feeling <laughs> so that's the only like death in the movie even right. though it's a metaphorical death we do have one major scene of uh, violence in the film uh, which is really impactful and it comes right at the, at the emotional climax of yeah. the movie and I, I, I looked away because I I wasn't sure if they were going to show it or not, but um, yeah, it wasn't completely graphic, but it's still. I yeah. think I still. It's very hard to watch. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And they cut off uh, poor Ada's finger. Not mm-hmm. they. Alistair cuts off fucking bastard her finger. I am, and I mean, actually, granted, I. 
there's also the scene in the woods earlier. He when does he, attempt to rape her. Yes. He do, when, yeah. So like that's basically a, all of the violence comes from Alistair. I know, right? He's such a. Fu- <laughs> I I said this while we were watching. I was like, God, what a fucking incel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I see. Okay, I'm gonna say something semi-controversial. Uh oh. Because I obviously agree with you, mm-hmm. but my semi-controversial thing is I feel like. There are there is a part of me that feels sorry for him. I mean, agreed. Same. Be- because I feel like his fault, he's a very flawed individual, but oh, his yeah. fault is that he he just doesn't know how to communicate. Exactly. Yeah, he just doesn't know how to connect with other people, mm-hmm. including with his wife, mm-hmm. and he's just sort of like bumbling and oblivious right. and Right. I don't know. I I would be interested to jump into like the the psychology behind that character, but just in in looking at him, I'm kind of like I think he's just so egocentric. Mm. He it doesn't enter his mind to see other people's thoughts, feelings, mm-hmm. opinions, least of all a woman. Mm-hmm. So of course he can't connect with his wife because she doesn't speak. Um but also he's not willing to like Go beneath the surface. Right, he's not to willing. Find out how to speak, how to communicate. Exactly, and like the, I, I, I talk during movies. It's fine. Um, <laughs> hopefully, it's fine. But like totally something fine. that I said to Orlando, like probably, I don't know, ten times during the early parts of this movie, I was like, oh my god, if he wants to connect with his wife, if she wants him to let, if he wants her to like him, if he wants affection, like. Step one, get her goddamn piano, the piano yeah. off the beach. Like, aside from her daughter, whom obviously she loves and is very devoted to, but aside from her daughter, that piano is very obviously the single most important thing yeah, to her. Right. And it's like, okay, you're in an arranged marriage. You're trying to find a way to, to connect and become a couple. Mm-hmm. Step one, get her that thing that mm-hmm. is the most important thing to her and have it in your home. Period, end of sentence. Right. Figure out how to get it done. Like, had he done that, maybe she could have fallen in love with him. Right. Because that would have been a very loving gesture. Like, why Why else? I, I, that's one of the big questions for me when I watch this movie is, like, what is really his motivation for even wanting an arranged marriage or even wanting a wife? I almost feel like he's just one of those people, like, checking the things off the list. Hmm. You know what I mean? Of, like, oh, I want to have my house. I want to have my land. I got to have my wife. But not work for it. Because even yes. even got a wife that had a kid already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a wife that doesn't speak, though, so he doesn't really have to work for it. Exactly. Like, but that's, and, and that's the thing. He wasn't willing to work for a thing. Like, from minute one, he was just kind of thinking that she would love him, adore him, mm-hmm. worship him, whatever. Right. The, the way, you know, some men of that time assumed people would be to them, right. women especially. He just sort of was like, oh, well, we're married. Um, and something I wrote down was the um, the wedding photo happening in the rain. Yeah, was like as soon as they got there. Such a fucking metaphor. Yeah. And the fact that he's like wearing this top hat and meanwhile she's just like bareheaded getting poured right. on and he's like fucking oblivious to the fact that like this might not be the most considerate thing mm-hmm. for my wife. Mm-hmm. This might not be a moment that she's enjoying very much, getting fucking rained on. And when she takes off the dress, she, like, just tears it off. Mm-hmm. She just can't get it off fast enough. Yeah. And, and like, again, a more perceptive individual might have seen that and been like, shoot, let me take a moment and say to my wife, hey, I am really sorry 
for making you sit in the rain for, you know, yeah. an hour to have a photo take. I really wanted to commemorate the day, mm-hmm. but I realized that I wasn't being considerate. Like something like that. Again, it could have been a bridge towards the two of them communicating. Uh, communicating, connecting, Mm -hmm. but it's like he just was never willing to be any level of considerate, not with words, not with actions. Could they have waited maybe like until it was like dry also? I mean, that would have been, I I wondered if the reason they didn't wait was because he had to go away for a few days because I think that that was the next thing that happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that may have been why they didn't wait. Or maybe take it, found a way to take it inside. I mean, I guess photos back then were really weird though. There were, there were a bunch of different things that could have been done that would have been more considerate. But even if none of those things could have happened, let's say the photographer was booked, paid for, couldn't come another time. Like, let's just say it was that. Just a moment of, hey, I realize that I just put you in a physically uncomfortable situation mm-hmm. of sitting mm-hmm. in the rain, and, I, and I'm sorry for that. Like, mm-hmm. a little bit of acknowledgement could have, like, bred some goodwill between them, but he's just sort of like, well, we had to have a photo. It's right. like, okay. Yeah, I wonder why she doesn't want to have sex with you after you made her sit in the rain for an mm-hmm. hour. <laughs> yeah. Um, Shocking. Both of the instances of violence... Um, First of all, they're shot very beautifully, which mm. is which is a great uh, juxtaposition to the to the horror that's actually happening. Right. Um, second of all, something that really struck me was um, Ada in both of those situations. She was always grabbing for something to prevent her from being taken, mm-hmm. and yeah. and in both of those scenes, like I feel like Alistair was just like pulling her the yes. whole time. Yeah. And it really is like that that push and pull um, that their relationship is just like being yeah. graphically explored in those two scenes, yeah. I feel. Um, and one of them was definitely more sexual than the other. The other right. was just like cutting her finger off. Ugh. And ha- like he says, he describes it as, he says, um, I just clipped your wing. <sighs> Fucking bastard. Mm-hmm. Uh, which actually, you know, that's another thing. Like there's, oh, there's this, this whole... Uh, kind of like visual metaphor of wings throughout the whole movie mm-hmm. too like the motif yeah. with the angel wings and all that there's a lot going on in this film actually yeah. I like I feel like I need to watch it again to like fully <laughs> grasp all the things but yeah that's a good point point. Um, and yeah what a metaphor for their relationship of just him constantly trying to like get on her or mm-hmm. have her close or like possess her mm-hmm. and her constantly just being like I just want to be away from you mm-hmm. like she doesn't fight back you know, she doesn't like, if I remember correctly, like, I can't remember a moment of her, like, hitting at him or, like, you know, I think of that almost rape scene of, her, like, she could have maybe grabbed a rock or a stick and hit him. She's but trying she to never, get away. She ne- yeah, she never, like, tried to fight him. She mm-hmm. only ever just tried to be separate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and because she couldn't speak also, like, mm. those... Those moments are very impactful because all yeah. you hear are, like, are like her grunting and, you know, her, her efforts. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it's just... Very impactful stuff. Definitely. Very powerful stuff. Yeah. All right, let's go into our next GSV segment. This one is BoobTube. We're talking about the gratuitous sex and nudity in this movie, which actually there is a ton of sex yeah, and nudity there's, there's, in this movie. There's some, uh, there's quite a bit of boobs. There's several asses. A lot there's of asses. There's even some peen. Har- Harvey Keitel. <laughs> I'm telling you, Harvey Keitel just loves to be buck naked on camera. <laughs> But also, I feel like one of the ways that you can tell that this was a, a, a female director mm-hmm. is the fact that we saw some peen. Mm-hmm. We didn't just see like a 
fully naked woman. Right. I mean, we did, but right. we also saw a fully naked man. Because man. it's the same fucking thing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And because it wasn't the male gaze, it was like, here, if we're going to have sexual situations and we're going to have naked people, let's have naked people of both genders. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how did you feel that the movie, you know, well, we kind of like hinted at it with, with what you just said, but how else do you feel like the movie did when it approached the the sex uh, and the nudity or like the sexual s- situations? Um, I mean, again, like there was the factor of coercion, which, you know, was a little like, mm. mm-hmm. but Harvey Keitel never forced himself on her he does try to like yeah. kiss her. Exactly. He does. He he initiates. It's like he initiates some sort of like sexual or sensual connection, kind of out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Like she's literally playing the piano, and he goes to kiss her neck. And if she had been a person who spoke, I feel like it would have been like, "Dude, what the fuck?" Right. Like that it was, was her just, reaction. It was just so out of nowhere. It was out she of did nowhere. the silent version right. of that. So it was kind of like, um, okay. That is an assault on, the, on her personal space, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and also it's like, you know, he could have, and she wasn't facing him, so she couldn't even know that it was coming. Like, he mm-hmm. could have been like, I really want to kiss you, or something like that to allow her to engage or not. Right. But instead it was just sort of like, I almost felt like it was one of those, I'm just going to go for it and see what happens, right. which is kind of like, ew. Um, even, even I think like when he takes off his clothes, yeah. that's, that's very much an assault on exactly. her privacy. I would say it's like, uh, it's like the equivalent of an unsolicited dick pic or something. Yeah. It's like, Whoa, nobody said, so the beginnings of their sexual relationship were less than desirable. I would mm-hmm. say, But, or, and, once it became something that she was a participant in, Mm -hmm. I felt like it was really beautiful. And I felt like it was really sensual and, um, oh, and something, something that I wrote down that I was like, yes, female director, was we, we see him go down on her. And I feel like that's just not something that we always see in movies. We see a lot of the reverse. Mm -hmm. Uh, where it's like women pleasuring men in that way, and then of course penetration. But in this one, we see like, and that scene actually goes on for kind of a while, and yeah, it's sort of it like, does. yeah, that's accurate and how it should be, and like that is how like you know, women kind of have to warm up more, right? Foreplay, yeah. Uh, and there's like, something also very sensual. I know you when that scene happened, you mentioned the dirty nails. Yeah. But there is <laughs> but there is something very sensual to me about the scene when he's tracing the hole in her stocking. Yes. Beneath the piano. Agreed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean it was totally like a metaphor for, you know, right. finger in the vagine. Right. Um, <laughs> and, you know, she didn't granted she may not have asked for it, um, but she also didn't stop it. Right. And I'm I couldn't really tell if she was enjoying it or not, but I think she didn't mind it. I almost think of that moment as like her, her like sensuality being like awakened again, Mm -hmm. perhaps Mm -hmm. because, you know, she has this daughter that's like 10 ish um, and she just married this guy and hasn't slept with him. So like it could have been quite a long time Mm. before she's been sexually involved with anybody. She needs, she needs a warm up, a very long period of foreplay. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, obviously, 
this is where I feel like your invaluable opinion here, because what I find fascinating is that obviously I feel like both characters, both male characters, um, the way that they pursue Ada is very problematic mm-hmm. and, and it's not what we should aspire to. Definitely not. So, and, and, but like maybe it was what it was at that time. You know, mm-hmm. maybe that was what I, courtship wouldn't really be. But that's <laughs> but not really an excuse it, though, right? I mean, no, yeah. definitely not. It's yeah. like, you know, consent is should be stop number one. Right. Period. End of sentence. And in both cases, I feel like the relationships or at least the physical, the sexual relationship didn't mm-hmm. start out consensually. Right. Uh, especially with like George, like even though he doesn't attempt to rape her, right. it is very coercive. Right. He's like, I want this. Mm-hmm. I want this. Do this. And I want to see arms. Yeah. And he's, and he's using the one thing that she loves and her most exactly. prized possession yeah. as a means to get this. Yeah. So my question is, um, why is it? Because by the end of it, like I agree with you, like by the end of it, it is something that she's into. Yeah. And we she gets there, <laughs> and we and we do end up rooting for both her and George. I feel like, like yeah. they end up together, so it's a happy ending. Right. So why? What is it, or at what point is it that? the relationship changes and how does it become like, how does it shift from being problematic to being okay? And what does that tell us about real world relationships? Uh huh. And I actually, I actually wrote a note about this. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I feel like the moment that it shifts is when he gives her the piano. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she is no longer tied to him. He is no longer holding, holding the thing that she wants more than anything. It's now hers. He's given it to her. Mm-hmm. And from there, from a more equitable place, I would say, she's able to make the choice mm. of going to him. Mm-hmm. Or or not. She could have just been like, well, I've got my piano. I've got my clueless fucking husband that paws right. at me occasionally. Right. I've got my kid. I'm fine. Right. But she has this moment of having back the most important possession. Mm-hmm. She has that, so she's complete in that, and yet there's a longing, mm-hmm. and that longing is for him. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that's the shift. It's when he's no longer he no longer has collateral, and she chooses mm-hmm. him in a mm-hmm. in a completely free and equitable way. Okay, okay. So it's like almost like whenever she's allowed to be completely free with her soul, with her communication. Yeah, yeah, like. Um, like, there's no incentive for her to be with him in any way, shape, or form, except that that's what her, you know, heart wants. Right. That's the moment. And, yeah, like, before any of that, like, I could see where things were going. And I, I felt at moments, I was like, she's kind of into it, but I feel like the situation right. is not right. Yeah. And so when he gives her back the piano, I'm like, okay, now it's. Mm. And it like it happened, you know, in the so next that's scene, a subtle like, shift. Two, yeah. It's like whoever whoever owns whoever has the power pretty much. Right. And it, right. It, 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 the, the the balance of power in the relationship shifted. Exactly. And like that's that's the whole thing with consent. Consent is freely given. It's not it's not given because you might have something to lose mm. otherwise, right. or because there isn't another choice, or because your no wouldn't be heard. Consent is given. 
because it you because you freely want to mm-hmm. and you could choose not to, but you're choosing to go with it. And mm-hmm. so when he still has the piano, she's not in a position to truly consent because she has something to lose if she doesn't go with what he wants from her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's an it's an interesting metaphor uh, for consent. Something else that strikes me as very interesting um, with whenever Alistair forbids her to go see George mm. and we we do see her desire come out mm. and then she expresses her desire um, on on Alistair. Mm-hmm. But he she do- tries. Well, she doesn't let him touch her, though. Yeah. She's the one who's like controlling it and touching him. And mm-hmm. it kind of echoes, I feel, the way that um, George started out with her mm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that's really interesting to me, too. Um, what? How, how did you feel the the whole, like, I guess, I guess we could call it the female gaze, but, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of, like, lingering and sensuality when it comes to the male form. Mm-hmm. And, I mean... Uh, I don't. I, maybe you're a better perspective for this than me <laughs> because I I can't say for sure. I, I think Harvey Keitel and Sam Neill are pretty traditionally good-looking guys. Yeah. Okay. Um. But they're but neither one of them are like Chris Hemsworth level. Right. Like you know, total beefcakes. You no, know, they both have dad bods. They're right. still good-looking. They're attractive guys. But yeah. But the but the movie I feel and Jane Campion. Mm-hmm. Um, goes out of her way to really sensualize that male body of right. both of them. Yeah. How do you feel like the movie the movie approaches that? And how do you compare that to how like movies um, usually approach the male body? Um, well, I mean, I feel like I feel like the way these male bodies were centralized was by bringing in vulnerability. Mm, very um, much. Yes. Yeah. That's a very good point. And that's not some, and, and mm-hmm. then the flip side of that is that's not usually mm-hmm. what we see in movies. Um, we may see, you know, a, a guy with a six pack mm-hmm. from, you know, the waist up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we might see a very muscular stomach and muscular shoulders and a very muscular back and sometimes a butt. And, but they, they leave out, the penis. Right. And I would say that, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say that that's a very vulnerable area on a man. Yeah, right. And especially, this might be too graphic, but especially when in a relaxed form, mm. I would imagine Classic. that's a, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, how do I say this? <laughs> we, uh, you know, we can talk, we can be all as explicit or scientific as we want in this right. podcast. Right. Okay, great. Um, but yeah. I would say like that scene with Harvey Keitel um, being like fully 100% naked and <laughs> flaccid. Right. Um, I would say that that is a both sensual and vulnerable mm. version of a male body. Right. And uh, a, a, a penis, soft or otherwise, is usually left out of most movies. And I think that that then pulls out some of the vulnerability. Whereas when a woman is fully naked, it's a very vulnerable thing. So I feel like in this movie, both male and female were able to be vulnerable. And Um, and also like the scene where, where she's caressing Alice, there's ass. That's very vulnerable. Very vulnerable. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Cause I feel like that's a motion that you usually 
or a, 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 the way that I think of it in movies, yeah, it's usually reserved for a female form. Exactly. Like yeah. you don't. You, there's not a lot of movies of like just like women, and there's no reason to be because I I know that women love butts just as yeah. much as, as guys do. I mean, I, that's it's just a very human thing. Everybody right. likes butts. They're but it, great. Right. But in movies. soft and cushy. Right. But in <laughs> movies, it's always about, like, the mm-hmm. female butt. Exactly, yeah, and, because it's usually a male gaze. Right. So in this one, she kind of flips the script a little mm-hmm. and is like, hey, men have nice tushy. cute butts, too. <laughs> and, and women enjoy kind of, you know, fingertip caressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and... We see how Alistair reacts. He's yeah, like he's so, very uncomfortable. So unable to be vulnerable right. with her. Right. Whereas Harvey Keitel is so vulnerable. He's okay with, with her. it. And that's part of. He's I kind think, of primed to it too because I I, I I like that earlier scene too where he just like takes off his clothes just to dust the piano. Uh-huh. And that's also a very yeah. sexy scene. Yeah. Yeah, it you is. Know? He's just more um, free and in his body. Mm-hmm. And as a result, he's more able to connect with somebody right. on an emotional and physical level. Yeah. Whereas um, Alistair is just that very much stuck in his head sort of person who who is uncomfortable with sensuality um, and, and uncomfortable with vulnerability. And as a result, they can't connect. Right. Right. I absolutely agree with that. I want to talk a little bit about um, Holly Hunter. So Hunter actually learned to play the piano when she was nine years old, and she played most of the piano sequences herself. Amazing. Um, I mean, she was an incredible performance, I feel. Uh, and I've I've been a Holly Hunter ha- fan for a long time. Love her in broadcast news. Obviously, she's the voice of Mrs. Incredible. She's a fantastic voice actress. She's wonderful. Uh, and and she's in Raising Arizona. She's she's great. Um, for this movie, she received three on credit on screen credits. Uh, one for playing the character of Ada. Mm-hmm. Uh, two for playing the piano. And then three for actually being the British Sign Language interpreter for Anna Paquin. Mm. So she was actually doing the sign language herself as well. Nice. Uh, Before deciding on casting Holly Hunter, Jane Campion met with several actresses in England, France, and the U.S. Among the actresses she considered for the role were uh, Sigourney Weaver, Mm. Angelica Houston, Mm. Jennifer Jason Leigh, Isabel Huppert, Juliette Binoche, and Madeline Stowe, who are all fantastic Mm. actresses as well. Holly Hunter, though, uh, really lobbied for the part. Yeah. Um, and whenever they cast her, you know, she's she's a pretty petite woman. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that when they were looking for uh, the young actress to play Flora, they actually um, auditioned over 5,000 girls because wow. they wanted to find someone who was mature enough for the movie but also small enough. small enough to believably, <laughs> believably be her daughter. I love that. And Anna Paquin is, now that she's an adult, obviously, and she's quite petite. She is too, quite so, petite as yeah. well. Um, in an article, when she talks about you know actors and nude scenes, Holly Hunter, who is all, completely nude in this movie, and right. um, in, 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 actually she's also nude in a lot of other movies, she, right. uh, she told Premiere Magazine... I've never signed a nudity clause in my life. Hmm. And whenever I've done nudity, I felt it was right. Hmm. I mean, we've got five senses and sex employs all of them. So if you're expressing something about what it means to be alive and in the world, how can you subtract sex from that? Hmm. What do you feel about that? 
Huh. I mean, obviously, I, I, I feel like... I kind like of love that perspective. It is a good perspective. Obviously, I feel, just for the record, that if you are an actress and you want to have a nudity clause, that's totally up to you. It's right. That's another question of consent and comfort totally. there. Totally, yeah. But, but her perspective, I think, is, is pretty I think that's a interesting. really interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know that I've necessarily heard, heard that type of perspective on it yet. And... Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that makes sense. And and I mean, like, I, I don't know that I've seen every movie that Holly Hunter has been in, but I, I would say, like, in seeing this one, mm-hmm. the nudity did not feel exploitative to me. You know what I mean? Right. It felt It felt respectful, for lack of a better term, right. and, like, it furthered the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I think that kind of nudity is great. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because, again, it, it furthers the storytelling. Um, I don't know if I... Mm, I feel like... I feel like I would, if, if I were, I would probably have a nudity clause yeah. or, or I would probably be like, I want to like put in writing what's okay, what's not okay. Like I want to have final say, but I, I feel like that would be a, a defense mechanism against wanting to be exploited. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like her stance on it, that's a very empowered stance to take. It is very empowered. And yeah. It's, it's also very like trusting. Mm-hmm. So she must never agree to a thing unless she's like, I know this creative team right. is going to do what is best for the story and not just like show tits and ass for, you know, well, and the way, the way she describes it is like she, she would, she don't, she wouldn't do it unless it felt right. Yeah. What it comes. Yeah. To me, Which you know. I, that, yeah, a hundred percent. That makes like, sense. Like obviously not every movie that has female sex or female nudity is yeah appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah. I but I can think of like me personally again I'm not I'm not a woman so I can't speak to that perspective but me personally in college like you know I was in a show once where um I had to be on stage uh for the majority of the show in just boxer underwear and I was blindfolded and I wow. was even hogtied for a lot of it um because I was I was being held hostage by a magic desert lady Of course Uh-huh and um and at the time I was uh, I'm a, I was a fairly fit individual <laughs> You still are. Uh, but, um, you know, the years are catching up to me. Um, but at the time, you know, like, I, I I, was not so ashamed of how I look. I mean, I'm still not ashamed. But you know what I mean? Like, I was right. more comfortable with the totally. way that I looked. Uh-huh. And I still felt like that was really breaking out of my comfort. Yeah. I still felt like there's there's a certain level. Uh, granted, again, I wasn't completely naked on yeah. stage. But there was still, like, a certain level of, like, trust in myself even Mm -hmm. that I had to build in order for me to approach that performance. And what I'm wondering with these types of roles that, that, you know, women have to, I I mean, obviously I feel like women are confronted with these types of decisions way more often than guys are um, because of the nature of the industry, unfortunately. And, you know, the level of self doubt and trust that they have to tackle Mm-hmm. to approach these roles um, seems to me like, you know, you know, it's almost like an extra layer of work that we don't really acknowledge from actresses, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, because <laughs> the thing is, is it's like self-consciousness is the enemy of great acting. Right, right, um, yeah. And <laughs> being naked might be like the most vulnerable and self-conscious position for a person to be in. So it's sort of like, how do you... How do you embody that, mm-hmm. uh, but not let it, you know, 
cloud your mind and, and cloud your, your essence. Cause if you're stuck in the self-consciousness of the actor, you can't fully be in the place of the character. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. That's it's, I, I, I didn't really think about it in those terms of mm-hmm. like, that's an extra thing that women in the industry have to deal with on a regular basis. Um, amongst, I'm, I feel like amongst other things, like right. I feel oh, like totally. the, the women always have to like jump through all these hoops that men oh, don't God, necessarily have to it. jump tell through. me about it. Mm-hmm. Ugh, and at crazy. the same, and at the same time, it's kind of weird because like women, I feel like are seen more as more desirable to the medium, mm-hmm. right? Like, like I feel like, you know, sex sells. Mm-hmm. So they want a female presence in the right. movie to sell their movie. Right. But then at the same time, their perspective of it is more like exploitative than empowering. So right. they make women jump through all these like hoops that men don't have to. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. To, to like be successful in this industry, women have to be incredible actresses, willing to get naked and look like a fucking 10 when they are naked. Right. And it's like, oh, Jesus, how exhausting. Yeah. 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 There's <laughs> and a like lot. youth is like this thing that's so revered, mm-hmm. which is like, if, yeah, there's nothing wrong with youth. Youth is great. But, you know, I, I feel like I, I wish the industry and I hope this is I think this is kind of the direction at least parts of it are going and I hope it goes further. But like mm-hmm. we need to normalize aging. Right. And not looking like we're 20 because 20 is a beautiful age but so is 35 and 50 and you know like and there's a lot of great i feel like uh sexuality that uh, people engage in in their middle age and beyond and maybe we should have some movies about that too you know Mm -hmm. like when's the last time that you saw like two old geezers getting it on you know like (laughs) totally actually okay i'm trying to think of the name of the movie Mm. Uh, Describe it, ha- it. It had, oh gosh, Diane Keaton and... Something's uh, Gotta Give, Jack yes, Nicholson. Yes, yeah. we saw two, you know, more mature individuals. Which is a good, that's a good movie. Getting it on, mm-hmm. having a fucking great time, and it's like, okay, yeah. And that was also directed by a woman. Directed by Nancy Myers. Yeah, which like, you know, let's... But how many years ago was that movie? And how long right. did it take for us to figure out like... I didn't even remember the name of it offhand. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's like, we got to normalize that. We got to have more of that. Because, you know, love, connection, sex, storytelling. Shit, that's a long time ago. Yeah, that's a long time ago. But like, all of those things are great at at every age. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, think about how many movies we see that are like coming of age, teenage movies. Like, teenagers exploring sex for the first time. And so, yeah, we're getting people that are in their 20s playing teenagers. Mm -hmm. So they have like these perfect... 20-something-year-old bodies and, like, fine, great. But the sex is usually awkward and bumbling. Yeah. Which is, like, fine. That's That's, part of life. But, like, how about we see 15 years in the future when they're, like, in their 30s and, no, they don't look like they're 20 anymore, but they, like, know how to have more fun. Right. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking... And even in that case, I feel like... um, those coming of age stories are very almost always male centric. Also, uh-huh. I mean, like we talked about Lady the Bird, bumbling sex lasts for like a minute, right? <laughs> but we talked about Lady Bird um, just a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Greta Gerwig directed it, and I feel like that's one of the few coming of age stories from a female perspective totally. that I've seen. It was awesome to see it that was. perspective. The sex still lasted for like a minute. It's always bumbling when you're a teenager, yeah. you know. It's always really awkward. Um, so talking about um, the young age, talk, let's talk a little bit about Anna Paquin. Now, mm-hmm. despite winning the Oscar at a young age, Anna Paquin admitted on The Late Show with David Letterman in 2009 
that she had only recently watched the film for the first time at the time of the interview because she was not allowed to watch the film at the time of its release in 1993 because of its sexual content, being 11 years old at the time. That makes sense. She was nine years old uh, in the filming of this movie. But she was incredible. She was. She and, was so good. And I want to ask you, because I feel like psychologically, you know, and I guess sociologically, the mother-daughter bond is the most profound familial bond in nature mm. or in human nature, mm-hmm. at least. Yeah. Um, and this movie is really interesting how it explores that. First of all, are there moments where you, like, hate Flora um, for mm. what she does? Yes, but but I also know that it's, like... She's a kid. She mm-hmm. doesn't realize what she's doing is is so destructive. Mm-hmm. And like in her little kid mind, she's trying to she's probably trying to protect her family. Mm. Even though she doesn't understand all of the nuances and their interweavings and whatnot, she what she does know is this is my mom. Mm-hmm. This is her husband, mm-hmm. which means he's supposed to be my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know this other person. Uh, that just their presence threatens this family unit. Mm-hmm. So I I can't I can't be a part of letting that threat in. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, like when she takes the key to <sighs> to her stepfather instead of to George, I'm like, God damn it, mm-hmm. child! What the fuck? But also, I if if you just like zero in on a child's motivation of mm-hmm. trying to feel safe and cared for and keep like a family unit together, it makes sense. Then there's no way that she could know what she doesn't know. But yeah, in that moment, I I kind of want to like give her a smack. So that leads me to my next question: Do you think I pick up on this, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if you did too? Do you think? there is a fair amount of role reversal between the mother and daughter. Mm. It seems to me that in a lot of the movie, uh, Flora is playing the mature, responsible role, albeit through Following the lens, the rules. albeit through the lens of a child. Yeah. And Ada is the more childlike, naive role of the mm. movie. Because she gives over to her passion. Mm-hmm. Whereas the child doesn't know that yet. Right. A child is just sort of like their world is very small. It's about their mom. It's about their dad. Assuming that they have both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I. I uh, hmm. That's an interesting perspective. I hadn't initially thought of it as uh, childlike versus mature. I was sort of thinking of it as rule follower versus rule breaker. Mm -hmm. Um, But I see your perspective and like that's definitely very valid too. Because I think like, you know, there's a lot of despondency, you know, like you you talked about, you know, when when Flora is upset the way she pouts, you Mm -hmm. you pointed that out. There's (laughs) a lot of... She's such a good pouter. That she is. (laughs) There's a lot of that in Ada too. Mm. Like the way she wears her emotions on her sleeve. And when we see her in love, for example... And dancing around the bed, and and, and uh, Flora is laughing with her, and mm-hmm. and Flora gives her like a really like knowing laugh, almost like like I know why you're laughing because you're like happy kind of thing, and yeah. that that feels very much role reversal to me. It seems like the kind of thing yeah. like that a mother would do to a child who comes home, and the mother's like, 
who did you meet? You know, <laughs> yeah. that type of thing, you yeah, know? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, there seems to be like almost like, and also a, a caregiver kind of mm, thing because mm-hmm. Flora is her interpreter right. in a lot of ways. Yeah. So she takes care of her mom. Yeah. And then when her mom, you know, shuts her out of her life because she meets this new guy, then I think that part of the reason why Flora is so keen to quote unquote betray her is because she herself feels betrayed. She feels jealous of the relationship. And she probably hasn't ever had to compete for her mother's attention. Right. Like ever. Because we don't know, we don't know exactly what her history is. Mm -hmm. Um, But she has a, a nine or 10 year old kid was unmarried before Alistair. Mm-hmm. It could have been that she hasn't been in love since Flora's father. Right. Or, you know, like it could have been that Flora's really never been, not second in her mother's eyes, but never had to share her mother's affection. Right. And like <laughs> when Ada marries Alistair, she's, you know, Flora's obviously not sharing her affection at that point. because She wants to be in the picture. Yeah. She's it, jealous there too. Mm. But but Ada's, like, not in love with Alistair. Right. So her daughter is still, you know, they're still bunking together. That's still the apple of her eye. Right. Um, so, yeah, she maybe has never had the experience of her mother loving somebody else. Yeah, sharing that. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, very interesting stuff. And, yeah, she does want to be in the picture. I want to <laughs> be in the picture. It's kind of like, mm, you're so cute. <laughs> She is a pretty, pretty cute child. She's so adorable. <laughs> and like, oh, I want to be in the picture. And they shoot her out in the pout that follows. Yeah, it's right. It's like a pout to end all pouts. Yeah, Anna Paquin is from New Zealand. Okay, okay. And there's a lot of people, like Sam Neill is from New Zealand, mm. you know. Harvey Keitel is obviously American, so is Holly Hunter. Um, the vo- the character work, though, was really strong in this movie. Sam Neill didn't have a Scottish accent. He was more like of a British accent. Um, but there was definitely like some Scottish brogue I felt in in Harvey Keitel's, and obviously mm. Anna Paquin mm. had some Scottish brogue, which I thought yeah. that was like that was really great accent work for yeah. a nine year old kid yeah. to have. Phenomenal stuff, amazing. And uh, Holly Hunter, uh, Ada, you know, we she never has any spoken dialogue in the movie, but we do hear her in narration, right? And I think that that's also like really great, strong character. Yeah work there. And something that I noticed um, and let me know if you agreed but when we heard her at both when we heard her at the beginning obviously we were listening to an adult woman's voice but there was almost I felt like there was almost a childlike quality to it. I I mean yeah that's what I think I think that she She's in a, in a lot of ways. She is kind of like the the naive child of the of the movie. Right. I, I feel. Yeah. Um. And and the movie is a lot about her growth. Right. Right. And her discovering mm. her own womanhood mm-hmm. and her own agency. And so I. That's why I think that the the metaphor of the piano, um, being a coffin and being her soul and the death and resurrection is really powerful mm. because after that, you know, we, we, we kind of see her learning how to talk and, mm-hmm. and being in more comfortable with, um, George mm-hmm. and being happy mm-hmm. with George. So yeah, it's almost so like many she's smiles. Whereas right. like for most of the movie, it's like, Oh, I think I just saw a smile. Right. Right. <laughs> like, but blinking, it's gone. Yeah. We finally see her like, happy. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, she, she, there is definite growth in mm-hmm. her, in her character. Super, super great stuff. Yeah. Now, in the movie, they perform a play, the, the kids and the, the town folk. The, the, per, the play performed is 
an adaptation of the French fairy tale Bluebird, mm-hmm. uh, which is recorded by Charles Perrault about a man who marries and kills his wives after they fail a test. He stashes their bodies in a small chamber, then marries again. Um, in the original story, the main character, or Bluebird's current wife, escapes her psychopathic husband and finds happiness elsewhere. A lot of people have made the connection because of the use mm. of that play in the movie yeah. that the piano is sort of a retelling, a feminist retelling of that legend. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I <laughs> hadn't thought of that while we were watching it. <laughs> and now that you say it, I'm like, oh, absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We don't we don't have like multiple wives being right. decapitated though. No, nothing I mean, that not that not that we know of. We, we don't know. know of. We don't know Alistair's history. That's true. We don't know what else he's chopped mm-hmm. off of whom. Um, but yeah, and and I wonder. Hmm. Okay, so here's a question. Okay. So working off of that, what do you think the test is? Well, the test that the the most obvious test that he gives her is not to contact George or go to see George. Right, 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 right. She fails the test, and so she she pays for it by getting her finger cut off. But I wonder if also the test is like her loving him, even if he's not giving her any reason to, Mm. and she can't. I think also like the the piano is probably a test, Mm. you know, because he very early on he says, "What are you willing to sacrifice?" What are you willing to sacrifice? And her whole everything that she does in the movie, yeah. um, up until the point where she l- falls in love with George, right. everything that she does in the movie is for the piano. Totally. Everything. Yeah. And, you know, so you, you could say that, you know, the reason why she never falls in love with Alistair, it's not really about George. It's mm. about the piano. Right. Like, that's the main obstacle. He came between her and her piano. Right. How could she love him? Right. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Although he's also like a bumbling idiot. So how could she love him? <laughs> we love you, Sam Neill. Obviously, you're a great totally. actor. But you as a human. You're a terrible person yeah, in this Alistair movie. Yeah, Alistair sucks. We don't like him. There is a part of this movie, again, it's very haunting. There's a lot of like dreamlike sequences in the movie. Um, a lot of harrowing realness, though. Mm. Um, the movie, to me feels very much like a fairy tale. Mm, yeah. And it, it it almost seems like the type of cautionary tale that you that a mother maybe would tell her daughter almost. Right. In in the the fashion of Bluebird. Mm. A blue bluebeard. <laughs> bluebird. Those um, two. <laughs> right. But you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I feel like, you know, it's it's all about like it's all about finding like your own uh, voice, mm-hmm, but definitely. it's but it's also like a, ca- a cautionary tale against like the the dangers of the world and the dangers of like following your passion, right? Because I mean, we live in a society today, and definitely, you know, back a hundred, two hundred, three hundred years ago, really forever, I think, mm-hmm. um, where women were not supposed to have wants and desires of their own. They were kind of just supposed to do what they were told. Right. Um, And throughout history, it has been dangerous for Mm -hmm. a woman to follow her desires, to follow her passions, to even have them. Right. So in some ways, yeah, I see how this could be a cautionary tale um, for, for not... Not saying not to follow your desires per se, but just that there will be a cost. Right. And, but I also think, you know, yes, yes to all of that. But I also think the thing that that really makes this film special is that 
it doesn't it doesn't end with that. It doesn't mm-hmm. end with the consequences. Right. It's it definitely uh, has that strong feminist perspective, and it follows through with it. Yeah. And it's like about okay. Uh, if you do this, then, you know, you might end up in a place that's happier in the right. end. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's like uh, you give up what's safe mm-hmm. to potentially feel fulfilled. Right. Um, but like, I mean, I look at it as she did pay a cost. She lost a finger. Right. And she had to give up that piano. Yeah. But the other side of it was worth it. Right. Absolutely. But in the middle, if you, would, you know, right after her finger got cut off, <laughs> you'd have been like, hey, how do you feel about your choices? How do you feel about following your heart? We don't know what she would have said. She might have been like, "I hate everything," or, I mean, or she would have said nothing because she didn't speak at that. I point. think that was uh, <laughs> I think that was eloquently communicated by the language of film. In fact, that's one of my favorite moments from a filmmaking's perspective is the immediate aftermath when after her fingers cut off when she is basically I would call it like a zombie face mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and she's just she just like wanders a little bit away and then falls into the mud mm-hmm. and the way that the dress. Um, the air, the air bubble in the dress poofs up, and how she's just laying. I mean, it just looks like a fucking painting. It's so, it's so sad, but it's so beautiful at right. the same time. It's just the care that's taken yeah. into this movie into yeah. every frame. It's, it's just it's so beautifully spectacular. Filmed. Yeah, but like, yeah, that is the hero's journey, though. Right. It's like if you follow your desire, you will lose something along the way. Right. Um, but you could still hopefully end up in a happier place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cause what you thought you needed isn't exactly, exactly. what you needed. It exactly. was something else. Mm. All right. We're going to go into the last of our GSV segment. This one's called, Ooh, that's, that's problematic. problematic. All right. What did we find problematic in this movie? <laughs> so many things. 1993. Oh, Jesus. So, uh, the way that George, um, pursues and coerces her at the beginning of their relationship, definitely. Right. Um, Alistair start to finish really <laughs> right um like just his his ways of trying to I don't even want to say connect with her because I just don't feel like it occurred to him to try to connect with her mm-hmm. but the ways that he tries to get her to be the wife he wants her to be are just so so problematic because it's treating her as like a second class citizen yeah. it's treating her as somebody who's beneath him and like that all really sucks. That's property, basically. Exactly, right. yeah. And it's, it's you know, like, why won't my property do as I say? And it's right. like, oh, because she has thoughts, feelings, and yeah. opinions that you're just completely discounting. And, mm-hmm. and um, So Alistair, super problematic, start to finish pretty much all the way. Um, the beginning of the sexual exploration with George, I felt was problematic. But again, we talked about that moment where it becomes... He doesn't have collateral and she gets to make a free choice. That's where it's like, okay, we're good now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the violence from Alistair, the attempted rapes, the chopping of the finger, giving the finger to her daughter right. to deliver. Like, oh God, come on. That, that's traumatizing to right. a child. It was. She was crying and bawling yeah. her eyes out. And, and if, I'm sure she felt like at least partly responsible. And like, I would think so, yeah. I don't think she expected child. that to happen. Yeah, no. She just thought she was like keeping her family together and, mm-hmm. you know, maintaining her mother's love. And um, so that was another thing I found problematic. Um, and I, I want to hear your thoughts on this mm-hmm. too, obviously. Um, but how, uh, like, judgmental the other women were, right. uh, the other colonial women right. were of Ada. Yeah. Um, I mean, she was an outsider. Yeah. Right. And so there, there was definitely that distrust. 
But like her. even the way they described how she plays the piano yeah. in relation to one of the other characters whose names I didn't catch. Right. She's like, when you play the piano, it's it's like it's proper and nice or mm-hmm. something like that. And she was like, she doesn't play the piano like that. It's like, no, she plays the piano with, with passion right, with and passion. like with artistry. And mm-hmm. but the way that not just some men of that time were against that, but right. how other women were like almost policing her yeah. for not being the right kind of woman. Um, yeah, so. I, I feel like yeah, everyone who was already there, other than George, George is the only white guy who, like we said, he had that connection with with the earth, so mm, he was more mm-hmm. savage or the, you know whatever you want to call it. But um, but all the other people were very puritanical, mm. right? Like in their attitudes towards everything. I mean, like the women were even offended when because uh, Ada tore the dress and mm. she was. They were like, "Oh, she got so violent. She tore the lace off that dress." And uh, and when they were uh, speculating as to whether there was something wrong mentally. Oh with God! Her. Yeah, like why would anybody play a, a table as a piano? Mm-hmm. There might be something wrong with her mind, and it's like. Really, you really can't for five seconds realize that this is her like longing for her piano. <laughs> I feel like even, for example, in the staging of the play there. And, and this brings me to my other my, my next question also, but uh, which is how does the movie deal with the portrayal of the native people of the of the Maori mm. people? Do you find that problematic at all? And and I feel like even in the way that the colonists uh, like, for example, in, in the staging of the play, um they just put on this play without really explaining the right. mechanics of what theater is or what you're watching. Mm-hmm. And yes, yeah, some of the Maori people, not all of them, but some of them took it as a literal occurrence. Right. And right? they were like, we're not going to watch a woman get chopped up. Right. I kind of loved that. <laughs> Which, right. Which, you know, could also be problematic because you're like, oh, well, you're portraying them as kind of like dumber than white mm-hmm. people. But but I feel it's more problematic the other way around because I feel like there's a responsibility mm. if you're bringing like this type of storytelling to someone who's not experienced it. Right. There's kind of a responsibility for you to be like, this is how this works. Exactly. Exactly. Because I'm sure the Maori people had their own version of storytelling. Oh, yeah. But it may not have been, you know, concealed beyond a sheet. It may not have been as violent. Mm-hmm. Their storytelling could have been a completely different thing. So like their version of theater may have been more, I was about to say pure, <laughs> may not have <laughs> Around involved, the campfire. <laughs> may not have involved murder. Right. So when they saw a, a fake murder occurring, that just may have been so foreign to them. It's mm-hmm. something that they don't do or talk about or, you know, put on a show surrounding that well, they, I, I they noticed, had to step in. I also noticed that there weren't any Maori people involved in the theatrical production. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's another thing too. Like it was all, it was just white people on stage. Maybe like if you had brought the community in. Just white people on stage. Problematic. Where have we seen that before? (laughs) Yeah, That's not a problem anymore. Yeah, that's Um, not something that still happens all the time. But if you had brought like that community on stage and made them a part of the process, Mm -hmm. then I feel like you would have had, that issue wouldn't have, would have been moot. Totally. And the story may have been May have been different too, right? But that, that being said, the Bluebeard story totally worked for right. this. But yeah, they excluded them from it and just assumed they would get it. Mm-hmm. But their society works differently, so it's so foreign to them that they didn't realize that nobody was actually in danger. I, I, f- I feel like you know a lot of the 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 white characters 
their attitudes towards the Maori people were definitely very problematic. They were mm. very dismissive of them. Mm-hmm. And even though George, like George was the only one who ever like really spent any t- any really quality yeah. time with them. And learned their language. Right. Which is pretty big. And he actually, you know, was comfortable enough to even like bathe with them. Mm-hmm. Comfortable enough to the point that they were like making dick jokes <laughs> with him, you know, like about his penis. Like that's per- that's a level of comfort. Yeah. You know, you have to be like friends <laughs> yeah. for that to happen, you know. <laughs> And it's very interesting to me that, like, yeah, everyone else was definitely had that colonialist attitude. Hmm. So how do you feel like the movie? Because obviously I feel like the movie was made by New Zealanders. Uh, Jane Campion is a New Zealander. And um, it, it obviously uses Maori people as actors. How do you feel that the movie... Um, treated those minority characters and actors. Do you, well, did you find anything problematic there apart from how the characters themselves um, interacted with each other? Um, I don't think so. Because, uh, I think that um, I think the Maori people were kind of portrayed as being more like true to themselves mm-hmm. than the colonialists, which I appreciated. And is, the way... Is, is there a level of cultural appropriation hmm. with uh, in terms of George Baines's character? I'm not sure. What if he had been what if he, he had been a Maori character? Ooh, that could have been more powerful. Right? That could have been a lot more powerful. So, I mean, was that a wasted opportunity? It was. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Yeah, although not although Hmm. I wonder how that would have changed things. Like, I it wonder if it, I, I wonder if Alistair's character would have been more threatening or more threatened by that. Yeah, definitely you know? more more like suspect. I think mm. you know he wouldn't have been as trusting. Exactly, he wouldn't have said, "Here, have my wife's piano, and right. also she'll teach you to play it." Right. So that would definitely would have changed the, the yeah. dynamic of it. Um, but you know, like then on the other side, like did, did George? have to have the tattoos like i mean and i'm not saying that this is necessarily problematic but did you find like there was any maybe level to that at all i don't know i feel like i would wonder what the maori people thought (laughs) you know what i mean because fair point yeah we don't have any maoris here today i know next time because like to me i see how he became like a part of their culture i view that as like an openness and, mm-hmm. and like juxtaposed against the other people who were so prim and proper in, in, in like almost rejecting that culture. Right. Um, so like I appreciate that he was like, well, this is where I'm going to live. So I'm going to like, I'm going to be friends with these people. I'm going to learn their language. I'm going to, you know, adopt some of their life philosophies. I appreciated that. However, I, I see how that could be cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I guess I, hmm. There's a lot of movies I feel like seem yeah. to exploit the dynamic, right? Like, yeah. like you know, even Pocahontas, for example. Mm. Uh, we got uh, you know white people and natives. You know, mm-hmm. um, we got uh, Medicine Man. That's another one that I can mm. think of. Uh, Avatar, uh, mm. even like you got uh, the Navi and and the the white intruders coming in. Um, a lot of movies seem to exploit that that power dynamic, yeah. and a lot of and I think that the, the trope of the white guy who has made it with the natives. Mm. That seems to be a pretty pervasive trope in filmmaking as it well, is. or in storytelling. And glorifying that person. Right, right. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good 
that's a good point. I mean, obviously, I feel like, you know, this movie upends a lot of the, um, uh, the expectations because it's told from a feminist perspective, but it's mm. still it's still told from a white totally. woman's perspective. Ugh, that's and this true. is 1993. Right. So, you know, not that, I mean, obviously I feel like the 90s, they should have known better, but right. there's still a lot of that attitude, I think, that, that kind of bleeds through the work. Yeah. Even though it doesn't, it's not something that's like to the level of grossness. Mm. Like you're not like bashed over the head with it. Right. I feel like there is some slight problematic traces of even the attitude of like Mm. the filmmakers to the actors. Yeah, totally. Like one of the early things when she first gets to New Zealand are that some of the Maori people are commenting on her white skin. And I think they say that she looks like an angel. Right. And so there's like this glorification of whiteness. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, is that, is that what they actually would have said? Or would they have said, look how white her skin is. She looks like a ghost. Or like, you know, it right. could have been any number of things. But the one that was chosen was sort of a glorification of whiteness. Right. And that, mm. and that you know, feeds it to the theme, the larger theme of yeah. the movie. But it is also like, why did, why did a Maori character have to say that? Right, <laughs> <You know>? right. <laughs> and could, would they actually have said that? I, right. I wonder. Right. They might have said something else. I also like kind of picked up um, on the scene where Baines is bathing with the Maoris. Um, there was one Maori uh, character who seemed to be kind of flirty with him. Mm. And even though like one of the other women like called him out and said that you have a wife too or something, like apparently this guy just was really open with his sexuality. Mm. But I seem to pick up a little maybe slight homophobia in how the characters um, maybe not the Maori characters because the Maori characters seemed accepting of it yeah. but at least like from the intent of it like how we the audience were supposed to read the scene mm. it was like oh there's that crazy like bi guy or whatever you know right. you know trying to flirt there it's funny because it's a guy flirting with you George you know like I don't <laughs> yeah. know it kind of just comes comes across as and again not in a very gross way. Right. But it just seems like a very subtle, like, you know, gay panicky kind of Right. Yeah. Thing. Which which, you know, I guess in ninety three I don't think they ha- I don't think they were quite as sex positive for Right. You know? Right. For uh non hetero. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah. That's true. Yeah, because that moment could have been that moment could have played out a bunch of different ways, and it right. could have played out as just being very like accepting and and almost celebratory, mm-hmm. uh, even if George didn't swing that way. Right. Um, Instead of it was like like a there was a comic subtle, relief. Right? Yeah, there was a subtle sort of oh how ridiculous. Yeah, he'd never be with you. Right. Mm. He's a man. Harvey Cartel. Like too manly for that, and it's like come on, there's nothing not manly about gay or bisexual, mm-hmm. you know anything. Yeah, but I mean, props to the movie for not going full gross with these things. Totally, but yeah. I, But I still think it's like, because it's a product of its time, mm. it still carries with it a lot of the attitude. Absolutely. From yeah. behind the scenes. All right, so we're, we're wrapping up our discussion here. Um, but before we uh, get to the end, I do just want to give a shout out to Michael Nyman's score, mm. which we did allude to a little bit, but we haven't really talked about. Um I feel like the score is phenomenal. It's, it's so beautiful. Um, the main piano theme, the one that we hear most often and the one that's most closely associated, I think, with Ada as a character, um, is a piece called The Heart Asks Pleasure First, mm. which is a fantastic title. Oh, that's, yeah. And I think that it perfectly encapsulates the theme of the movie. Yeah. 
Um, ah. I mean, the entire soundtrack is, is spectacular, but that song specifically is just like so haunting. And uh, I mean, I feel like, yeah, that's when you hear her play that, you are literally like hearing her sing her her speak mm, right yeah and it also like i think like goes back to like you know the the film's attitude towards sexuality and all that it it, it very much is in tune with that the title of of the song because like the movie is about that it's about asking for pleasure first mm. and then um whatever like comes from that like growth right. agency whatever that is mm-hmm. but like the first step and you know, this movie connects it to sexuality, but when you think of it from a human perspective, mm. that's sort of how we interact with the world is how do things make us feel? Mm. And if something makes us feel scared or uncomfortable, we don't automatically seek that out. Right. But if something feels good or pleasurable, then we automatically are like, yeah, that's something that I totally dig. Mm. So I think like even in our, in the broader scheme of what humanity is, like, yeah, the heart asks pleasure first. Like yeah. our soul is like, well. And if we listen to it. Right. Yeah. Like what what feels good and do I have the courage to pursue that, mm. you know, kind right. of thing. Because a lot of like the time, like, you know, when we when we gauge what happiness is versus unhappiness, I feel like a lot of it is us denying what the heart is asking of us because we're too afraid to find out what that pleasure is. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, I I, but what did you feel about that and and the song and and that the music in general and all that? I mean, that's such a great title Mm -hmm. for a song like shit. (laughs) Yeah. Such a great title. Um, and yeah, like I, I loved anytime we would hear that song, we're like getting to peek into her soul. We're hearing her express herself. We're getting, uh, you know, like to connect with her inner longings. Um, and yeah, like the, the movie and, and like, you know, life, the heart does ask for pleasure Mm -hmm. and it's really a matter of like, are we, are we willing to listen? Are we willing to, to risk right. to follow that or are we going to play it safe and, you know, die a slow death? Mm, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think especially for women, because I feel like throughout history, women have been encouraged, uh, to deny their pleasure, to deny that like encouraged to play it safe and mm-hmm. discouraged from following their pleasure. And it like, I think it takes guts for anybody to follow their pleasure, but I think especially women. And I think especially in that time period, right. it's, it's really, really brave to, mm-hmm. to follow what your heart is asking for. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're coming to the end of our discussion uh, on the piano. So final thoughts. What did you think about this movie? Do you think it's a bad movie? Do you think it's an okay movie? So-so movie? Do you think it's a good movie? A great movie? Where do you land? I think it's a great movie. Mm. And I, I want to watch it again so right. that I can... Because I really I really want to go back to the first moment yeah. <laughs> when George and Ada meet. And I want to I wanna see what's in that moment. Right. You know, whether there's the seeds of something, whether one or both of them recognize it. Because, like, we talked about this. That moment where she plays the piano on the beach, he obviously falls, like, madly in Mm -hmm. love with her. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, she's not falling in love with him. I think that there's some level of gratitude for him bringing her... But really, she's, like, 
making love to her piano. Pretty much. In yeah. that in that moment. Pretty much. But I but yeah, I am curious. I wanna I wanna see the whole thing just in general because it was good and I feel like you can absorb more mm-hmm. um, when you see things multiple times, but I wanna see what what lives between them in that first moment. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think it's a great movie. Yeah. Um it's it's one of my favorite movies. I I feel like everything is just on a whole other level. The cinematography, the music, the acting, the story, it's just very compelling, very haunting stuff. Mm. I wish there were more movies like this. Yeah. Um, I mean, we talked about Portrait, Portrait of Lady, of Lady on, on Fire, Fire oh. which is, I feel like, in, so it falls into this like kind of niche, I think. Yeah. I, another very passionate and haunting movie. Oh. Um, but yeah, I, I, I feel like there is definite power in the female perspective. And uh, I think from a from a guy who watches, I mean, I I love guy movies. Mm-hmm. You know, I love action movies. I love like even like those old like you know '80s action movies and James Bond movies. Even mm-hmm. the very problematic. I even love like the '60s Sean Connery movies, the ones that are like super gross, misogynistic, sexist. I love that shit because <laughs> I am a man. But when I watch a movie like this, like I feel like I tap into that side of me. Yeah. I tap into like the the feminine side and it just brings out this whole other perspective on the world that you don't often see and I feel like it's sorely lacking mm-hmm. um, in, from, from mainstream life. And I feel right. like if we as viewers, uh, cinephiles, lovers of, of film or entertainment in general, allowed ourselves to be challenged and confronted by different opinions mm-hmm. and different perspectives, like our lives would just be like so much richer because yep. you can just have like a deeper understanding of what that other side is and how to appreciate like a different, you know, take on, well, this is a seduction story, mm-hmm. right? Well, well, usually you see a seduction story from a male perspective, right? But, but this is like a seduction story from a female perspective. Mm-hmm. And how, like, what is the woman feeling during all of this? Yeah. The push and pull of her emotions. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like the key to the movie really is Ada's muteness. Because when your main character, the the our, our, the way that we work, right? Mm-hmm. Like we are very visual beings, right? And we watch movies for the art, the visual art of it. But we, um, the way that we absorb the story is through our hearing. Yeah. Because that's how we um, get the dialogue and the dialogue conveys the story. Right. If it was a silent movie, we would be reading it, Mm. which is still dialogue. And when you read something, you still hear it in your mind. Right. Right. So so it's still about listening. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like the, the key to the success of this movie for me and why it's so brilliant is because our main character is mute. Mm. And we only hear her speak, her um, inner monologue, twice in the film, at the beginning and at the end. It kind of bookends this whole journey. And because she's sort of like the calm, silent center of this storm and everything is happening around her, it forces you to really put yourself in her shoes Mm -hmm. and live through this experience with her. Yeah. So I think that that's really brilliant. And um, I'm uh, Jane Campion has made a bunch of other uh, good movies. Never anything quite to this level, mm. but she is a fantastic filmmaker. This and, would be a tough act to follow. Right, it would be a very <laughs> tough act. And there's a lot of, like, I think, female filmmakers who 
have a lot of great perspective and mm. these types of stories in them. And I, I'm excited to, to see more from them. Honestly, I want more. Yeah. I want more more girls out there. I Girl want power. More. I want more. I want more. Well, that brings us to the end of another exciting episode of GSV. Thank you for watching The Piano with me, Woo-hoo! Catherine. Thank you for inviting me. This was awesome. I hope that you um, come back again and we watch another yeah. movie. If you, Let's do it. Yeah. I had a blast, you know. All right, great. I love watching movies. And we hope that you guys out there join us again next time when we dissect another schlocky masterpiece. Until then, sit down at the piano, play those notes, go watch some movies. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. You guys always bring me the very best violence. No relationship, no emotion, just sex. Just sex. No relationship, no emotion, just sex. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. Just sex. You guys always bring the very best part. I hope we're gonna have some gratuitous sex and violence. Yes. You guys always bring the very best violence. No relationship. No emotion. Yes. You guys always bring the very best violence. Yes. I hope we're gonna have some gratuitous sex and violence. Yes. You guys always bring the very best violence.